random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Paul Levitt, comic book writer, editor, publisher, mostly at DC Comics, but currently working on an Avengers project, which is why you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson and me today. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, he is a defector, ladies and gentlemen, of the distinguished competition. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. We are joined with the award-winning, multifaceted, multi-talented Paul Levitz. Paul, good evening. Good evening. You're way too kind. It's also the short intro, so be thankful for that. (laughs) (laughs) So... The reason we called you here today is we are here to call, to kill the Batman. No, 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 no. <laughs> we are here to talk about, first off, one, your career in comics in general, as well as the recent announcement. You're doing something at the House of Ideas. You're no longer with the Distinguished Competition, and you are doing... You, you are making your debut at the House of Ideas, and what grander scale than to talk about the Avengers? Yeah, just to correct, it's not so much that I'm no longer at the Distinguished Competition. I've got a story coming out from them in about two weeks. I just haven't been exclusive to them for several years now. Gotcha. And, you know, Mark down to saying, would you be interested in doing something? And as a fan of your writing, it's I feel like it's a long time coming. Like, when I when I saw the announcement... I was I did a double take to be completely honest because like Paul Levitz is synonymous with DC Comics. Whenever you think of your name, you think of the Legion of Superheroes and that iconic run that you did over the decades and to see you over with Marvel now, I love that you're making your debut with such a big title like The Avengers with the uh, upcoming miniseries that's going to be happening. Well, you know, it's The Avengers is one of the books I use to learn how to write group books. I studied it and modeled on it when I was taking on Justice Society years ago, and a lot of that logic, I think, probably also permeated my legion. Um, a fair amount of my writing, style, panels, Stan Lee by way of Roy Thomas, by way of however it permuted in my brain. So it, it's not an unnatural thing from my point of view. It just was the way my career pattern fell that there never really was the right opportunity to do anything for Marvel for decades and decades and decades. So I can't say with too much accuracy that you're crossing the streams or (laughs) the equivalent of a group that you like when they come up with the greatest hits, it means they're changing record companies. Yeah. I'm not sure it's either of those. I'm I'm getting to play with a bunch of toys that have been on a top shelf hidden away from me up until now. Oh, so you either found the ladder or got tall enough. (laughs) Yep. There you go. Oh, very cool. I love the fact that you're working alongside, by the way, the great Alan Davis. 
I love Alan's work on so many different titles and like to see him, you know, partnering up with you on this. This is like creme de la creme. I've been a fan of Alan's work since DR and Quinch, at least. Um, He has so much personality in his faces, in his acting. Such a smart artist to play with. And a really nice man as well. Um, We never had a lot of contact in the time he did projects for DC, but I met him occasionally and very always very pleasantly. And I was very happy when board offered him up as the as the victim for this project. Uh, yeah, appropriate source uh, choice of word there, maybe victim. Well, <laughs> you know, the nature of being an artist on particularly on work for higher kinds of stuff you really have to deal with whatever the writer has come up with and you can give feedback you can screw around with stuff depending on the writer's faith in you and i certainly had considerable faith in alan there can be stuff left for you to modify and screw around with yourself but if the writer's not doing stuff that you love you're spending a lot hours working on somebody else's ideas when you're a writer you have to put up with feedback from an editor you may like and respect that editor or you may not i have worked with both kinds in my life um tom was just fine but you're dealing with a blank page you don't have to wrestle with something that somebody else has started most of the time once in a while, you know, and there were occasions when I was dialoguing a story somebody else had plotted or finishing a multiple part story that somebody else had begun. And sometimes that was wonderful and sometimes that was extremely painful. Mm. Um, but I, I've worked with enough artists as an editor, had enough of them as friends, that I know there are occasions where an artist really sucks a lot. From what gets handed to them and i hope i wasn't doing that to alan i hope i don't do that to any of the artists i work with um but to some extent they, they are the victims of the writers what would you say paul has been uh the relationship post co-worker if you will or i see you were responsible for hiring a lot of Famous names, whether they be Marv Wolfman, Alan Moore, like you said, the late George Perez, Keith Giffen, John Byrne. Um, You know, there were, of course, ups and downs, I'm sure, with every relationship, with every person. Everybody's different. But um, throughout that, I don't know if you've maintained them or, you know, you you learn, I suppose, maybe this is just a a thought out loud. You you learn how people operate and say, well, it's Tuesday, and so such and such is not going to be in a great mood, but when we get to Friday, it'll be better. Any, I don't know, highlights of anybody you want to mention at all? Well, you're giving me too much credit because you're reading too much Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) I was part of the process with many of those people. I think there are very few cases where I can say, that was all me. Um, You know, it was a team. But I'm really happy that a large portion of the people who worked with DC and for DC have pleasant memories of 
part of the part of the management team of the company or pleasant memories of me. There's a few who don't, um, and some of those make me win. Um, either things that happened that I wasn't aware of or situations that I could have handled better, I'm sure, too. Um, but most of the people have, have remained either friends or pleasant acquaintances in the process. So now one of the things that you're most well-known for, other than the Legion of Superheroes run, is your involvement in 1980s DC. And a lot of what I love about 1980s DC is so much of a revitalization. And to be completely honest, I've said this multiple times on the show, I prefer 1980s DC over 1980s Marvel 110%. There's so many great titles. There's even, you know, super underlooked titles that blow the competition out of the water. And it's it's the case of, like, what were some of the stories during that time period that you really gravitated towards and you were like, wow, the fans get to read this as well and I can't wait for them to experience it? Well, you know, I think 80s DC or at least sort of 80, maybe 82 DC to about 92 or 93 DC will legitimately go down in comics as one of the three great times for a large line with DC comics in the 50s and Marvel comics in the 60s. It's really a very different thing to have a large line of comics with a lot of great stuff happening than it is to have a small focused line. I mean, even DC, a couple of guys, Bill and Al, had their hands on everything, and you could have your hands on everything. Um, the the Duck books when Barks was the, the genius that everybody was modeling on at the center of it. But not every DC in that decade-long period was brilliant. God knows. Um, some of them, I'd be really happy if no one ever read again. Um, <laughs> but we came to bat with really terrific stuff very frequently. A lot of that was the fact that we had put in place royalties and participations that were motivating people in a new way. A tremendous part of it was Jeanette Kahn's personal creative courage and her belief that comics could be anything. And, okay, let's try and see what happens. And on the good days, an editor would be walking through the hall, whether it was with pieces of Dark Knight or Watchmen or Kingdom Come or early Sandman um, with a, a chunk of something that was in progress that they were excited by that you looked at and said, you know this is work that will have lasting meaning and lasting significance, which is not what happens every day on every comic book. What would you say, though, Paul, is the percentage, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, of, of knowing what you just said versus just like, okay, let's see how this goes? Oh, it's it's such a small percentage. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if you've got... God... We would put out probably a thousand comics in a year through most of that period, and I don't know, maybe eighty-five, eighty-six might have been where our batting average 
is the best. I don't know. I mean, for myself, is one. Right. Oh, you know, if you have ten percent that matter, that matters for the long run, you're doing phenomenal. I mean, myself as a reader of, you know, a lot of the DC stuff, especially on the uh, DC Universe Infinite app, I love seeing so much of that era of DC. And it's funny because, you know, there's like the underlooked and underappreciated titles. Like, you look at Atari Force, for example, during that time period, and it's funny because you wouldn't think that would be such a stellar title. Was it, you know, creatively probably the best thing? Probably not. But from a visual standpoint, my God, was it a gorgeous book to look at, you know, with the uh, Jose Garcia Lopez art, among other things. And it's just such a uh, such a unique time. And again, I you know, I will say the batting average of success in D.C. during that time period is really, really good. Like, I know, you know, I know you'll say like there are like some one or two, you know, like the not so good, you know, the the stanky stank, but Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. Don't you dare besmirch the name of Captain Carrot in my presence. Both of I those. I love Captain Carrot. Yeah. Shout out to friend of the show Jason Ayers, by the way. But in regards to like a lot of that stuff, like there's so much great well, stuff, you know. You know, we had an inc- we had an incredible editorial team working. When you look at Atari Force, a lot of that is Andy Helfer who was a first-string first comic book editor. And his passion for taking something that was a tie-in, yeah. you know, constrained, constrained in a lot of ways, and a tie-in not to a media thing that had depth and weight to it, like you can do something as an original story based on Lord of the Rings. What would you like to do? Um we're seeing the results of that every Friday, I guess, at the moment. Um, but what can you do with the word Atari? Yeah. Um, and, of course, Jose was really completely coming into his own in the in the 80s as maybe DC's premier superhero artist of those years. He didn't really like the straight superheroes, so Atari Force was... A little more fun for him to do because of the science fiction of it. Jerry, I think Jerry Conway wrote most of those. Jerry, one of the most solid superhero writers that come through. So you had a lot of people who were having fun, and it showed. And again, I think a lot of it was Andy goading people to have the right kind of fun. What would you say are some of the titles from that time period that you know you feel the average comic book reader overlooked that you really enjoyed and you're just like why aren't they reading this this is a great thing they're missing out on something great you know that's a that's a hard one for me guys because I can't keep things in in their time sequence easily in the process right um, you know it, it kind of all blurs together in the process so I'm I'm not sure and I also think the collective wisdom is entitled to its judgment. Right. If the universe decides that the Great Darkness Saga is the most important thing that I wrote, not the origin of the JSA, well, they can make that decision. <laughs> and it stands, and 
for whatever set of reasons that that story survives and the other story becomes just part of the broad DC mythos and kind of fades back. So, you know, there's so much that is so respected in that time. George's Wonder Woman run, John's Superman run, a lot of the different things that were done in Batman and the, the unique special projects that were done. Camelot 3000 maybe isn't read as much today as I think maybe it deserves. That was a very groundbreaking book at that moment. Um, but it's hard for me to come up come up with a, a list of favorites and place them in their right time periods. Well, on your behalf, we'll say Captain Carrot. <laughs> and Captain, Captain Carrot counts. I think Roy and Scott had a lot of fun with that, and it shows. I'm coming to realize that when we first started mentioning Atari Force, I said, yeah, I collected that back in the day. And then I remembered there were quite a few DC titles. I'm a mostly Marvel person, but there were quite a few DC comics that I was collecting in the 80s. And I'm thinking, whether good, bad, or otherwise, Amethyst, um, Arion, Lord of Atlantis. And then you have, like you mentioned, Camelot 3000, which I don't know if that was one of maybe the first DC titles, like Vigilante, with that thicker... Uh, I guess Deeper. maybe weather-resistant uh, uh, or time-resistant uh, paper stock. That was our that was our first offset title. Mm-hmm. I remember being up the printing plant for the uh, for the press check on it um, because it was such a such a new thing. And I, there I was up in Montreal in the middle of the night watching it come off the press. See those things you remember. I've had a really interesting life. <laughs> And it's also cool, again, you know, to see the appreciation of the 1980s era of DC to the point where, you know, there are the uh, multiple uh, compendiums of, like, the celebration of the decade. I recently came across the uh, the DC in the 80s, the Experiments book that uh, you had worked on, that you uh, edited. And that's a friggin' cool book. Like, there's just so much cool stuff. And, like, to see, like, what's it called? Angel Love is, like, one of those, you know, titles. It's, like... It's so out there, and it's it's like the the indie part coming to DC, you know, like pre Vertigo. It's it's a combination of Jeanette's desire to push the limits and see what could be done, Karen Berger as a young editor taking something on, Barbara Slate, who did that, was a greeting card artist predominantly, and I forget how Jeanette had encountered her. God knows Jeanette had the most had and has the most eclectic group of friends and acquaintances of any human being on earth. Um, and when she ran across Bar- Barbara, you should do a comic for us. And Barbara didn't, didn't know how to do a traditional comic at that point. And a bunch of us spent some time with her, helping her. Um, and she came up with something that was very fresh and very new and very of the moment. She's a brilliantly talented woman. I mean, she went on to do a lot of interesting stuff, not just Barbie for Marvel, but, you know, a, nine, a 9-11 report graphic novel, a book on you can create a graphic novel. She does a lot of time teaching particularly kids to do their own graphic novels these days. Um, you know, these are all... These were all experiments. We didn't, we didn't necessarily expect any of them to be phenomenal. But we didn't know which might 
point to something for the future. We had just seen a change in how comics were distributed, how they were printed, the audience, because we were now mostly in the comic shops and not on a newsstand. What will the people who are going to these shops want to read? We don't want to read just the same things that people wanted to read two minutes ago. And we were screwing around trying to find directions. And what I love about DC also during that time is everything is given free reign. Like, it's not just, you know, limited to one character. And, you know, my biggest grievance with uh, DC at the, t- at the you know, currently is it's all Bat-centric. And I feel like back then there was everything. Everything had a fair shake. You know, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, like, they, you know, could be something, you know? And now it's like everyone's taking the Bat back seat, you know? You know, the guy... The guys and gals there, Murray Javins, who's the editor-in-chief currently, are doing the best that they can come up with. Their turn. I'm not going to sit here and throw stones. You're welcome to as a reader. You pay your whatever it is, three bucks for a comic book. You can take all the shots you want. Um, But I respect that they're trying to do the best they can within the conditions they're working under. We were doing the best we could under the conditions we were working under. We were very lucky in who our bosses were. We were very lucky in kind of the rising tide that was helping the comic book industry at that moment. And uh, we tried to take advantage of all of that. So now, Paul, in regards to what is next with the Avengers miniseries that you're going to be working on over at Marvel, what are some of the things that you learned while working on titles such as The Legion of Superheroes that you've incorporated into this miniseries? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I'd like to think that between... Oh, sorry. As a writer, you don't really always remember what you learned where. I teach writing, a graphic novel, writing comics for much of the last decade, each writing in general for much of that time. I learned things reading comics. I learned things writing comics. Before I did this Avengers cycle, I sat and reread sequentially all the Marvel comics up to the time of where my story is set so that I could channel my best stand of that moment and make my right notes on what pet names Giant Man and the Wasp were calling each other and what Thor's grammar actually was at that particular moment. Um, But I I can't place specific things from one to the other easily about where was it that I learned to have a character moment. Um, and, And for this project, the heart of what I was trying to do was really channel a lot of the things that were the the magic to me at least of Marvel in those years. So there are walk-ons of several other Marvel characters because that's what Stan would have done. And you have Betty Brant buying a newspaper and you have Willie Lumpkin delivering the mail. Um, and 
if you look real carefully, you can see a couple of other folks who are not traditional Avengers characters wander through it. Um, and maybe some of that comes from my time on the Legion, but I think a lot of it comes from thinking, what would Stan and Jack be doing? This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And... Two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And what would you say was your introduction to Marvel growing up? So when I was a kid, I was restricted by my mom to buying three comics a month, three comics a week, sorry. Um, and DC pretty much always had at least three things worth buying. So for a long time, my only introduction to Marvel was other kids' comics. I had one good friend who was a Fantastic Four fan. He kept arguing that Fantastic Four was better than Legion of Superheroes. He might be right, um, but I didn't agree with him at the time. And another slightly older friend had a box that included some of the early Spider-Mans and one or two early Avengers. Uh, but I didn't really come into Marvel till I was about 11 when I was graduating from elementary school and my dad took the week off. He was the president of the school PTA, unusually for a guy in those years at least in Brooklyn. And so he was involved in a number of the graduation things during that week. And he really didn't give a damn how many comics I bought. Um, so I got got to try a few Marvels, including an issue of Avengers. And there was no going back at that point. I, I, was, I was omnivorous after that. And by the way, speaking of the Legion of Superheroes... Over the years, I've seen how rabid the Legion of Superheroes fan base can be, and I've always wanted to get into the characters, but I feel like it's such an intimidating kind of, you know, offshoot of the DC Universe. And I want to know, what would be a good starting point for the average reader with the Legion? I don't know that you can trust my judgment. <laughs> um, you might start... Legion Annual Number 1, which is a little bit before The Great Darkness. It's in the same hardcover uh, or trade paperback. And that introduces pretty much all of the major Legionnaire, Legionnaires of the time with at least a minute of their own glory. Yeah, because I've wanted to get into the characters for a very long time, and I just feel like there is there is that little bit of an intimidating factor I am lucky. I have a copy of the uh, the Great Darkness Saga, which, by the way, is signed by you at uh, Big Apple Comic Con in 2019, the last con before everything went kaflooey. Yeah. 
Was that your last show, by the way? I'm sorry? Was that your last convention you appeared at, by the way? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, whatever. Probably New York Con 2019, because that would be towards the end of the year. I don't know that there was anything after New York Con. I don't remember when the Big Apple was. I think that was, uh, Eddie, it was December, wasn't it? December, the winter, yeah. The winter show, because there was mm-hmm. snow, and I was like, oh, this is cold. Oh, so that probably <laughs> would have been the last, yeah. Yeah. I I will return. I'm debating whether I'm going to show up for a few minutes uh, this week at the New York Comic Con, but I've got a family wedding this weekend, so it's a little difficult to do. Yeah, understandable. Difficult in my, in my uh, area, too, um, in perspective, too. With... Uh, one of the things, of course, I go back to the source of things that you've done, and, and I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about uh, some material that would be in the 75 years of DC Comics, the art of modern myth-making. Um, a wonderful project. You know, I was getting up from the desk. The Tashin team, Josh Baker, who's the art director on it, had been working on the book visuals together for probably about two years. And Steve Corte, who was the editor, still hadn't found a writer who could do the, the prose section of it. And he said, uh, you know, you're giving up the day job, boss. You know this stuff. You can do this. And I took it on, and it kind of reminded people I could put words together, I guess. So it was uh, it, it was perfect timing in my life. And I'm, it's a gorgeous book, and I'm glad... Glad everyone enjoyed it. It won a pile of awards, including the Eisner. Um, there are a lot to be very proud of. I see also, Paul, you're involved in the comic book Legal Defense Fund. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. I don't know if I've recognized the uh, the name myself before. I did a decade on the board of the fund. That's, based, that's America's First Amendment charity for comics, fighting banned books and things. Uh, I've been off the board now a couple of years, but uh, we did a lot of good work building that up and fighting the good fight. Um, You know, this America's culture is particularly susceptible to what's known as a moral panic. That's what happened in the 1950s with comics. We've seen it happen with video games. Oh, my God. Grand Theft Auto is going to make all of our children into criminals and <laughs> prostitutes and terrible human beings. Um, rap music. Before that, it was rock and roll's turn. Before that, it was the movie's turn. It was television's turn. Um, and this is kind of a re- reoccurring problem. And when you see brilliant creative work like Kababi's Gender Queer or Alison Bechtel's on home, Art Spiegelman's mouse, get banned. you got to try and do whatever you can to deal with that, and the, the fund has been very helpful in that over the years. For those that don't know, like myself, how frequent would issues or confrontations, whatever conflicts arise with, with that? Oh, they're constant. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, only a, only a handful end up being fully litigated in the court Mm -hmm. but stupid things happen all over the place Uh, my favorite story from my time on the fund was I think in Kentucky if if I'm misplacing this I apologize to the state of Kentucky Um, a library had 
purchased copies of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And a couple of the library clerks, not librarians, but just clerks, decided this was a satanic work and should never be allowed near anybody. And they kept hiding it, not letting it get put on the shelf. Ultimately, they were caught. That was against the rules of the library. They were fired. They turned to the pastor of the town and began a big campaign to call out this book as the satanic evil thing that it was and try to get their jobs back. Well, if you're familiar with the book, it's way less satanic, if, you, if, if a comic book can be satanic, than many, 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 many things published by others. Um, what it consists of mainly is Alan Moore and O'Neill doing a pastiche of the great Victorian literary characters like Captain Nemo, the Invisible Man. So the fund worked out to get Professor Jeff Nevin, Jeff Nevin, who is one of the guys who is simultaneously deeply knowledgeable about comics, but a recognized authority on Victorian literature to testify at the, the hearings or whatever the proceedings were that, in fact, this was a true literary work and it was legitimate and fit with the canon. So crazy stuff like that happens, happens again and again and again. Do you recall, though, Paul, how long that took to um, run itself out, if you will? Months, but years, thankfully. Yeah. I mean, you look at the most recent uh, book banning involving Mouse, and it's it's kind of a uh, crazy thing to see still going on in, you know, 2022. You know, on the, on the one hand, I have a lot of sympathy for parents who want to control what their kids read. It's a fundamental responsibility of being a parent. Let's you know go back over to the whole issue of the Avengers happening soon. What else, you know, what was it like when you found out Alan Davis was going to be involved in this project? You know, this is a, again, a collaboration, as I, you know, lovingly said earlier, creme de la creme. Like, it's, it's perfect. Like, the dude is, like, one of the best illustrators. So to see that tandem, I love it. Guys, you're talking to a writer who got Steve Ditko and Wally Wood doing his first creation when he was 18 years old. I've had stories drawn by Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Kurt Swan, Gil Kane, Irv Novick, Joe Kubert, Carmine Infantino. The list on and on. Dave Gibbons out of out of the Brits, um, Barry Kitson out of the Brits. You know, I hadn't worked with Alan before, but I am incapable of being blown away by this. Is going to be drawing my story. I'm not. I don't. There'd be people I'd be thrilled to work with, but I I wouldn't have the kind of reaction you're anticipating because I'm spoiled. I would say just alone with Ditko, like, as the, the starter, that's, you know, like, when you collaborated with him, 
what was like what was working with him like because i've heard so many different stories over the years like did you actually meet him in person and talk with him about it because i know he was very uh an yeah. aloof kind of person like very you know to himself you know steve, steve prefers to have preferred to have his work speak for himself so i honor that um but you know i met him many times we did about 20 stories together including um I guess you could qualify it as my first creator-owned piece of work from Mike Friedrich's Imagine, one of the Star Reach comics he put out, uh, where Steve and I got to keep the copyright on the, the story that we did um, back, way back in 78 before there were indie comics um, in any real number. Um, you know, it, for the most part, when I worked with Steve, I did full scripts, uh, and he drew them. And every now and then he had suggestions or comments, or but most mostly he he was the victim of whatever it is like whatever it was that I produced. Thankfully, he enjoyed most of it, so we kept working together. I think I did about twenty stories with him over the years. Did you ever work with uh, Gil Kane? Got, Gil drew one of my stories. I think a DC Challenge issue. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know we worked worked together in the sense of his being an artist working for the company and my having dealings with him from that for many years. I feel like this is the part of the interview where I'm just a fanboy where I'm like, did you work with so-and-so? What was he like? What was he like? (laughs) (laughs) There's just like, I love hearing so many of these different stories Mm -hmm. involving a lot of these creators that, you know, they're just, they were just an average everyday person, but like the cult of the comics fandom, they've made them into these, you know, larger than life kind of figures. Like, Obviously, it goes without saying, but, you know, look at King Kirby. You know, all the stories I've heard over the years, and, like, I wish I had gotten to meet the man. You know, Jack was a incredibly sweet, quiet human being. Uh, most inven- inventive mind of his generation in comics by far, certainly. But in the years I knew him, he was already, I guess, by the time by the time I met him, almost as old as I am now. Uh, he did he did the cover for me for the last of my fanzines. It's hanging on the wall behind me, um, with stuff by my other friends. But you would not have found him a very imposing person if you just met him for five minutes. Um, he would have been very supportive of whatever you were doing. He would have been very pleased that you cared about his work, very thankful. But the magic that went on in his brain was not outwardly visible. You look at the guy, and like a lot of what he did was it was so trippy and out there. But you know, the the man creating himself, you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't suspect it. Like same thing My with favorite Ditko. moment with Jack, just because it was the rare time when I was able to be be good to someone who who I respected so much. I showed up at San Diego on my hotel when one year I'm going back and forth, and I'm walking through the lobby, and Jack and Roz are sitting on a couch in the lobby, clearly waiting for their room. And they look exhausted. I know they drive down from L.A. for this 
often they drove down with Julie Schwartz, but sometimes sometimes with other people, I guess. And it was, oh my God, you know, gram that's Grandma and Grandpa sitting there, worn worn to shit. Aww. And I just walked over and handed them my room key and said, guys, this is the room. Go lie down and rest. Take whatever you need out of the mini bar. Order up whatever you whatever you want. And just you know, leave leave the key leave the key at the desk later, and I'll pick it up. And the, the, maid, the maid will make up the room. Don't worry about making a mess. Um, and it was just the rare time of being able to to be good to someone who had been so good to to me and to so many others. And it's so wonderful to see the celebration, you know, especially in recent years, of all of his contributions to the medium. It's wonderful that. He's gotten the recognition he has. Would have really pleased Jack. It's wonderful that his family got a big bag of money. <laughs> that would have really pleased Jack, pleased Roz even more, I think. Um, she tended to be the business manager in the family. Um, most important thing, I think, is that the work endures, the influence endures. And that, that would have thrilled him no end. The bombacity of Kirby's work just it still holds up so strong and it it holds up especially, you know, in terms of a creator's imagination. Like there's just something special about it and seeing so many of the Silver Age artists, you know, how impactful their work is, you know, to this day, you know. You look at the late Neil Adams and everything he did and good lord and I, I hate having to preface it with the late, but you know. But he's dead. Yeah. And it's it's sad. Eventually, we all are. Yeah. That's how the deal works. So, let's end this on a lighter note, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in regards to Avengers: War Across Time, what do you, what is the selling point for yourself that you would like the audience to know for this series? Like, why why should the reader want to check this out? I I hope it's fun. You know, there's. There's a lot of byplay between the characters. There's a lot of moments using the rich mythology of Marvel, whether it's you know the FF's possession of Doctor Doom's time machine, or maybe my favorite favorite moment as a writer was explaining to Alan in the script. There's a I think a distinctively American stupid game where kids toss up a baseball bat and then you put hand over hand over hand over hand <laughs> until it determines who, who gets the last hand on it. I don't know if you guys ever did that when you were kids. Yeah. I don't yep. know if it's still a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lovely moment of Thor doing that with Sindri, the king of the dwarves. On the, not on a baseball bat, but, but on Minola. On the, uh, the, the shaft of the great hammer. And it's funny because when I saw the announcement of this, it made me realize, oh my God, Paul Levitz is going to write Captain America. And I feel like that's a character seeing that, seeing this finally come to fruition. As a fan, I am ecstatic and I can't wait to see you do that character justice. Yeah, I think, I think I do okay with Cap. I don't, I don't know who I had the most fun with. It might have been Giant Man and the Wasp because 
the relationship is what it is. Um, but Cap certainly gets Cap, Cap certainly gets his moments in it. Um, some fun Iron Man moments. Hopefully, hopefully I serve them all reasonably well. Well, again, no doubt we're looking forward to seeing that. And um, anything else you can possibly um, impart to us? What might be coming up in the works? Other stuff going on? Um, you know, I, I don't do a lot of comics at this point. I've got one graphic novel project sitting at Dark Horse waiting on an artist to be picked for it. That'll be the next, the next thing I'm cracking. I would love to be able to do more with the Avengers over time uh, or do other historical stuff. I can't do the current versions of the characters really at either company because the mythology has gotten so layered in the decade or, or more now that I've been away from the desk that I can't penetrate it. But I would love to be able to do more nostalgia stuff and have fun with it. Off mic, I'm going to tell you some of the ones I would love to see you work on, but there there's quite a few that I would love to see get the uh, Paul Levitz touch in terms of the Marvel, like the classic Marvel continuity. But Dick Marvel, uh, you know, I spend about half my time teaching. I do a couple of charitable boards usually. I'm on the board of Boom, one of the mid-sized comic book companies. Uh, I do odd consulting projects. But uh, I've I've got writing time. Um, I just I realized a while ago that I emotionally tend to be an assignment writer, and somebody comes up to me and say, you know, can you can you do a hundred pages of this? Sure. When do you need it? Um, but I don't easily sit there and say, this is what I'd like to do next. Mm. Uh, odd, odd blockage in my life. A muscle I never built. So now before we go, one other thing I wanted to ask you, what is the biggest piece of advice you would give a aspiring comic book creator, a writer, in regards to the pitch of how to get the pitch proper, do you know, for possible success? Well, first of all, you shouldn't want to be a comic book writer. You want to be a writer who, as part of your career, will write comics. Because pretty much any successful writer who's done comics doesn't get to do comics for their whole career. We do one thing for a while, then we do another thing for a while, and you bounce back and forth. So my friends have gone on to write prose, write television, do technical writing, write animation, write films. So think of the comics that way. In terms of pitching, come up with a genuine idea. The best pitch is not based on somebody else's work, but it's based on something that is uniquely yours. And what do you have to say that hasn't been said before? And try to express that in a couple of sentences that gets, that gets the listener excited. Try it out on a few friends and see who responds. Very cool. Well said. Yep. Paul, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Um, I'm trying to put something up on my website every week or so now. PaulLevitz.com, very complicated name. Um, so there's a bunch of interesting stuff there, hopefully. Um, there's a piece up there about my relationship with the Avengers that I did last week or the week before. Um, and 
and I'm usually on Facebook under my own name. Uh, you can find you can find me there. You can find links to the posts or interviews that I do or things like that there. When this goes up, hopefully you guys will send me a link and I plug it there. Mm-hmm. Um, theoretically, I have a Twitter account, but I have, do about one tweet a year. Uh, I don't use it very actively. Um, it's an event when it happens then. It just, it's too short. I can't, I can't say anything really interesting in 280 words. That's um, 280 characters. I'm sorry. That's, that's a gift I don't have. I'm too verbose. Well, we do thank you, Paul, for the gift of your time in talking to us here about what you're up to. Congratulations on all that's gone before and, and lots more ahead. Thank you, gentlemen. Be well. Thanks for the airtime, and hopefully we motivated a couple of people to buy a couple of comic books. Mm-hmm. I'm going to buy all the variant covers, too. Oh, you... Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> for The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Paul Levitt. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Obsessed with Marvel, Paul Levitt's edition. In the book, let's go to question 1680. Who, excuse me, what is Kai, spelled K-apostrophe-A-I? He answers, where Jarella's reigned in the microverse, or the mystic realm of Iron Fist's origin, or an other dimensional world ruled by Shazana. Finally, Princess of the Sagittarians. First up, oh, Shazana, and second, uh, <laughs> what was what was the other one? The uh, It's Kun Lun for Iron Fist. It, it most likely sounds, I think, like that, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Paul? Sounds like Iron Fist to me, but don't trust my memory. Yeah, well, all right. Again, where Jarella's reigned, it's, it's tight. I think the grammar is wrong here, but it says where Jarella's reigned in the microverse, the mystic realm of Iron Fist's origin, other dimensional world ruled by Shazana, or the princess of the Sagittarians. See, Kai t- sounds like it's a yeah. It's I, I thought Iron it was Fist a type thing. of cobra for one. Oh well, yeah. Well, let's let's try the Iron Fist answer, which is letter B. And no, <laughs> the answer is A, where Jarella's reigned in the microverse, and this is Jarella apostrophe S, the possessive. Sure. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So Kai equals Jarella at some point in time. Okay, let's move on. Two, I don't know why three. Eddie throwing the uh, bookmark out of the book was kind of funny to watch. It's like, um, oh, get out of here. It's just, it's just cumbersome when I'm trying to get close to a mic, turn the pages. That's a good song, by the way. Two, cumbersome. Which? 1980s. Or 1990s. Is that right? Okay. Two, three, eight. How what's, do we appreciate it? What's the last number in The Price is Right? Two, three, eight, nine. And it reads... Which Western hero rode a horse named Apache? Oh, no. Here we go. The Apache Kid, the Rawhide Kid, Arizona Annie, or Red Wolf? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a throwaway or a like giveaway here. I feel like it's it's the easiest one to guess. Yeah. You know, it's like right on the nose. Mm-hmm. The Apache so Kid, the Rawhide Kid, Arizona Annie, or Red Wolf? I'm not sure if there is an Arizona Annie, but I, you know. Paul, your thought? Um, 
those are not Marvel comics I collected, with the exception of Red Wolf and a couple of odd reprints of the others. They were westerns. Never did it for me. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like Apache Kid. You know, it's like too like, hey, it's him and his horse Apache. It's like no, it doesn't uh, make sense. I feel like it's Rawhide Kid. So you do, yeah. Okay. All right. So you want to take a guess, Paul? Uh, hang on one moment. What? I will <laughs> walk on my. Okay. Is he going for the top shelf now? <laughs> I guess Arizona Annie was a character that just never crossed my path. It's only been over the last year or two that Western titles have come across my. The, hand, the handful of Westerns I, I've got are buried, so I can't even do a do a good cheat on this one, guys. Oh well, I'm we appreciate your honesty in trying to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> That's an oxymoron, but okay. So give us a guess. Rawhide kid. All right, so yeah. we're gonna just I'll I'll cave sort of kind of and go be rawhide kid and it is correct. Apache rawhide kid. Okay. Okay. Well, then maybe rawhide preceded uh, Apache kid by saying I like that horse. I'm gonna be known as <laughs> I don't know. All right, let's go for question number three because we are one for two. This is the game maker. This is the next question is what it is, and if I don't stop saying numbers, You're impressed I'll impressed that I haven't got one. What? Yeah. yeah. Well, we, you did. You got one. Question, yeah. Question one five three. What is the supreme intelligence of the Cree? Oh no. Is it a computer system containing the brains of the greatest Cree in history? Yep. Is it a genetically engineered life form? Is it a mutated Cree with extraordinarily high intellect, or a wholly artificial intelligence? To quote, it's a big face, mostly green, staring out at you. Tentacles coming out of its head, maybe, or something. Tendrils. It's what the Fonz would always say. Hey. hey. Yeah. So the answer we're thinking is, I mean, it seems like you could be lost in the uh, different versions. But again, a computer system containing the brains of the greatest Cree in history, a genetically engineered life form, a mutated Cree with extraordinarily high intellect, or a wholly artificial intelligence. Well, there's nuances. Wholly artificial intelligence, Batman. Um, Or Radio Man, sorry. So are we guessing A? Yes. Paul? Yeah, I don't think anybody was using the phrase artificial intelligence in those years. Gotcha. So, uh, I wasn't sure if they were using a computer system. Okay. But let's go, go with letter A. It is correct. Two think, for three. I like this. I think that'll work for us. Okay. You think that works? Yeah, two out of three ain't bad. Oh, thank you, Meatloaf. Okay. You good All with, right, gentlemen. You good with that, Paul? We again appreciate it very much. Thank you again. Sure. For-